Hi, everyone. I'm Mike Goldsworthy. And I am Blake Ryan, and we want to welcome you to the Tomorrowland Church Podcast. We created this podcast to explore innovative ways transformational leaders are leading and reimagining the church for tomorrow. With that said, let's start the show. Friends, welcome back to the Tomorrowland Church Podcast. It is always good to have you with us. And uh, I'm really excited, Blake, for the guest that we have today because he comes from the land down under and uh, he's Australian and he was recorded with us from Australia. And so significant time difference and all of that. Um, But you have actually spent some time in Australia. Did you like what did you notice? What did you experience when you were there? Yeah, no, Australia was a fantastic experience uh, for for me and the family. We we actually moved there. We packed up everything we owned and moved there in 2008. And if you don't know where Perth, Australia is or Western Australia, it's uh, 16 hours from LAX to Sydney or Melbourne. And then it's another five and a half hour domestic flight across uh, the continent from East Coast to West Coast until you land in Perth. So the travel time is about 24 hours and also it's a, it's a, it's a commitment for sure. But you know, there's things that surprise you. Right. Um, and I think there's a couple of things that surprised me. One, um, we, we just had no idea. We went to the mall. We were new to the area. We were trying to buy some things. Um, you know, your U S appliances don't uh, fit into the sockets there in Australia. So you got to find some local uh, appliances there. And uh, we were sitting there on a bench in the mall and all of a sudden it's five o'clock and all the doors start closing to all these different shops. And uh, we were a little bit confused. You know, I think in the U.S. context, it would be, you know, is there a, is there a bomb scare? Uh, you know, what's going on? Uh, but for them, that's just uh, how they live. You know, there's restricted, at least at the time, there was restrictive um, shopping hours and that's just how you lived your life. You know, everybody kind of closed shop at five o'clock and went home. And so, you know, in, in many ways, that's endearing and in, in many ways, uh, certainly um, not as helpful <laughs> when, sure. when brand new to the country. And, um, and it, was, it was strange because their grocery stores uh, were attached to the mall. So you would pe- you'd see people, you know, uh, trucking their, their groceries through the mall, which was, which was kind of interesting. But I think one of the most surprising things is just the, the wildlife. Um, uh, in, in Perth, uh, Western Australia, you know, so it just wouldn't be that big of a deal to watch a kangaroo kind of hop through your neighborhood. What? Um, yeah, it was kind of weird when one jumped in the car, hot wired it and took off, but, um, <laughs> yeah. And there's just, you know, like these cockatoos, you know, you're just like, wow, that's so in- amazing when you're here in the States and until like a flock of them, you know, flies over, <laughs> uh, with an alarming sound. So, yeah, you know, there's just always going to be a special place in my heart uh, when it comes to to Australia and, and specifically Perth. Love that. I love that. Well, we are going to get to have a little bit of a cross-cultural experience with your friend uh, here in just a minute who you're going to introduce to us. Um, but hey, podcast listeners, we would love to encourage you to um, to help us out a little bit by getting the word out about the Tomorrowland Church podcast. And so there's a few ways that you can do that. You can be posting uh, when you're listening on social media and tag us on that. We would love to have you tag the Plain Joe Studios Instagram um, or Facebook accounts. You can also rate us on iTunes. We are going strong right now with a five star rating. So so don't don't screw that up for us. And then uh, finally, you can tell other people like we'd love for you to pass this along, especially if there's an episode that you found helpful. We would be very grateful if you would take those steps for us. No, that's awesome. And I just have um, the immense uh, blessing of introducing Tim Healy. Tim and I connected uh, when we were both on staff at Riverview Church in uh, Western Australia, largest uh, church in Western Australia, which Tim uh, was able to take the senior pastor um, role uh, starting in 2007 and uh, sorry, 17, excuse me. And now he's uh, transitioned out. And he's a lecturer over at Alpha Crucius uh, College. And so we are just, uh, we're lucky to have him on.
All right, friends. Hey, welcome back to the podcast. We are so glad to have you with us today. And today we are lucky to have Tim Healy with us here. And Tim serves as a lecturer in theology and ministry at a college that I cannot pronounce, Tim. How do you pronounce the college that you serve? Alpha Crucis. Alpha Crucis. And um, if if you haven't been able to tell from that just little brief break in there that uh, Tim is in Australia, and so he doesn't speak American, but I think we're going to be able to understand him a bit. And he served at a couple of different churches, one of them a large Assemblies of God's Church in Johannesburg, South Africa, and then most recently at what I understand, if I understand correctly, was the largest church in um, in Western Australia, in Perth, Australia. Is that is that accurate? Correct, yeah. Great. Um, yeah, thanks for hanging out with us. I know it's early in the morning for you as we're here, and I know, that Blake, uh, that you've known Tim for a little while. Yeah, Tim and I go way back, man. We go back to kind of 2007, 2008, um, is when we met uh, Tim and his better half, Liesl. And uh, funny enough, Liesl helped me <laughs> in what I was doing uh, at Riverview Church uh, as we were uh, figuring out what it means to, to, to be in Western Australia. And I think Tim and Liesl had beat us um, from South Africa um, by a little bit before that. And so we were both a little bit newer to the area, a little bit newer to Riverview Church. But uh, man, just in that short amount of time, I love this guy, fantastic guy, and uh, lucky to call him friend. And so we're just uh, super excited to have you on with us, Tim. And you are our first uh, international uh, guest on the Tomorrowland Church podcast. And it sounds like it's 6 o'clock a.m. your time. It's the afternoon for us. So literally, you are Tomorrowland to our church podcast, right? I'm coming to you from the future, man. I am the future. <laughs> And, and you can't great. see it. <laughs> you can't see it, but it looks beautiful. Um, <laughs> no, man, we're just really uh, appreciate you coming on and spending the time with us. And just you, you know, the you're you're uh, you're moving and shaking, man. So you know, um, I know you were with Riverview, and you've been on staff for a while. And I know that you know Hayden had taken over um, for for Riverview, which again is the largest uh, church in Western Australia. And then it looks like he he went ahead and resigned and and probably spent some time and on the on the university sides of things. And then you got the opportunity right to to take on leadership of Riverview. So talk me through that a little bit. Talk talk to me about the opportunity to become the senior pastor of Riverview. Yeah, look, it, it, it's an interesting story because we actually finished up um, at Riverview in 2016, or at least we resigned in 2016. So we were. Um, coming to the end of our season there, we felt like it was time to move on. And so I'd had a long conversation with Hayden about that. We had worked out an exit strategy, which was like a six-month-long exit strategy. And so we finished up in March of 2017. And we went back to South Africa for a month just to spend time with family and, and uh, pray through and work through what was next. And literally three days into that, trip in South, in South Africa, I got a call from the chairman of the board to say, um, uh, Houston, we have a problem. <laughs> like, Hayden, Hayden has resigned. Uh, the executive minister had resigned. Uh, the church was in pretty significant financial trouble. They said, we, we think we may be trading insolvent. If not, we will be within a few weeks. Wow. Um, the church was going through a major building renovation program, like a $15 million building renovation program. And there were a couple of complications that developed over the process of that um, renovation. And it put the church in a really difficult financial position. So they, they called me up and they said, would you come back? We just, we just need you to come back and help stabilize the ship. They said, you know the people, the people know you, you've got um, credibility, you've got relationship, you've got the capacity to at least ensure the continuity of ministry. So would you come back? And we need you to tell us in the next two days. If you're, <laughs> you're announcing. Hayden's resignation on Sunday. This was on the Thursday, and we ideally would like to tell the church what what Plan B is. Wow! And so my wife and I uh, had literally two days to think about it and pray about it. I was I was off in in the African bush at the time on a, on a photography trip, and she was in Cape Town, so we weren't even the same part of the country. And uh, I'm literally sitting at this you know these waterholes in in <laughs> in uh, 
Africa with like herds of elephants in the background and I'm on my phone and I'm, I'm you know, WhatsApping with the board back in Australia and with my wife in Cape Town and trying to make sense of what's going on. But in the end, we felt like that was what God wanted us to do. It was the right thing to do. We, we have a deep love for Riverview Church and love the people. And so we said, yeah, right, we'll come back. And initially they said, just come back for six months. That's all we're looking for, a six-month commitment, interim senior leader, help us stabilize the ship and do what needs to be done. And so we said, all right. So we went back. Um, it was a pretty um, urgent situation. So we had to do some drastic things. We, we had to yeah. cut our operating costs by like 30%. Wow, and that included like a twenty percent reduction in in staffing, but of course there was no money in the bank. There was there was literally a hundred and eighty thousand dollars in the church account, and, and we're talking about a church with with an operating budget of six and a half million dollars. Wow. So to be sitting with one hundred and eighty thousand dollars was was just disastrous. And so we were literally weeks away from trading insolvent. And so um, we basically had to gather a whole bunch of business leaders in the church and say to them, "Look, guys, we we need to raise four hundred thousand dollars, like now." Uh, to be able to pay for redundancies and short-term creditors and just deal with some things. And to their credit, they stepped up and, and through, a, through a, a combination of short-term interest-free loans and, and offerings and donations, we raised $400,000 and we were able to implement those changes and, and deal with short-term creditors and, and just deal with the short-term cash flow crisis, which, which essentially was the heart of the crisis. Um, and then we set about uh, implementing some strategic changes. Well, that, that six months turned into three and a half years. And so <laughs> for the last three and a half years, that's what we've been doing. Um, leading the church, just stabilizing things, getting it back on an even keel. And, uh, and so by the time we finished up in November of last year, um, church was in a much better, stronger place. We had, we had over $3 million in the bank, um, had paid down 10% of the debt. We had $7.5 million of debt, paid down some of that, had a million dollars in the building fund. And so there was just breathing room, breathing room um, for the board to then have a significant conversation about what the future leadership should look like and what part, if any, we should play in that. So um, we had a long conversation about that. In the end, concluded they had, a, they had an idea around the future leadership that they were quite set on and, and felt confident about. Um, I, I personally didn't see myself as part of that new structure. And so I took the next off-ramp and left. And um, they're now in the process of establishing their, their new leadership arrangement. So, yeah, it's been a fascinating three and a half years, mate. It's been um, probably three and a half of the hardest years of ministry. Uh, I had to do some really difficult things like, you know, make some of my friends redundant. You know, yeah, was right. really hard conversation. But, yeah, that, that, that was the opportunity. And um, I'm just grateful to God for his grace and for the resilience of the Riverview people. They are just some of the most remarkable, generous, understanding, and resilient people I have ever met. That's wonderful. Yeah, and, and uh, it's interesting because when I landed in Perth, I was just coming out of a similar situation that you're talking about here locally um, with with a church. And, um, you know, there's there's a few leadership qualities that, that seem to help that process, um, you know, transparency being one of them. And just, you know, talk to us a little bit about that. I mean, that's, um, that's an incredible turnaround. And I know that God is a big part of that, but leadership is, is, a, is a massive part of that. Um, and so what, what are some of the keys that you walked away with going, you know what, it's because we did this that, that we're here today? Yeah, well, I think you're absolutely right. You hit the nail on the head. Transparency was so important. And, and the congregation, I think, were just stunned initially. They had no idea there was any kind of financial pressure or crisis. They had uh, no idea what the situation was. And so when it's suddenly, and it felt sudden, when it suddenly unraveled, they were just, um, you know, dumbstruck. And so one of the first things we did was just um, communicate clearly what the status quo is. Just gave the church a... Um, no holds barred update on this is where we're at financially. This is what has happened. This is why it's happened. This is what we need to do, get out of it. And we gave them regular updates, like at least once a month, we would let them know this is where we're, where we're at. This is how we're traveling. This is what we're doing, why we're doing it. And they so appreciated the transparency. And, and to their credit, they stepped up incredibly. I think for the first um, six months, our giving um, doubled. Wow. And so the, the church said, hey, we don't want this thing to go down. Like we yeah. invested ourselves and um, our families into the life of this church for so long. We don't want to see it go down. So, so they stepped up, which was, which was an interesting 
revelation, I think, of, of the capacity of the church. Sure. <laughs> and so, you know, we did have a conversation about, hey, guys, we don't we don't have to wait for a crisis to be this. <laughs> we, we can do this more regularly and avoid these types of crises in the future. Um, but they appreciated the transparency. And um, and, and I think we we leveraged the urgency that the crisis created. I think somebody once said, you know, never, never waste a crisis because the value of a crisis is that it provides you with urgency. And that urgency allows you to implement changes that ordinarily would take a really long time to, to implement. Yeah. And so we, we leveraged the urgency and we made the necessary changes. And as hard as they were, people were understanding because they knew, well, if we don't make this change, this thing's going down. Um, yeah, and, and, and then we just endeavored to be as clear as we could be uh, in the face of the uncertainty. So I, I think certainty is is probably somewhat illusory. I think it's overrated. I, I don't think we can be as certain about as much as we think we're certain about. Yeah. <laughs> we can be clear. And, and so what we try to do was to be clear in the face of uncertainty, to say, well, we're not sure where this is going and how this is going to end, but this is what we're going to do. And this is what we need you to do. And I find if you're just clear with people about what you need to do, um, they'll respond. And we put a really big emphasis on on being clear about the next 90 days. I thought that was pretty helpful as well with our, our team. We're, we're not talking two years, three years, five years from now. We just had a 90-day plan that we kept up to date. And we were crystal clear about what everyone needed to do for the next 90 days. And that was incredibly helpful. Yeah. Man, that is fantastic. And I I just thank you uh, for, for your perseverance in the face of all that, I mean, that's not uh, an easy challenge to, to, to overcome, especially after thinking that your life is going to go one way, uh, yeah. in the, in the, in the deserts of Africa <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> finding yourself three and a half years yeah. later, yeah. you know, um, continuing to lead the lead, the church. And so, um, Mike, did you have a follow-up on that? Yeah, actually, um, Tim, as you were kind of sharing there and you're talking about your three and a half year period, uh, that was a long transition. It reminded me of a recent book um, Bruce Feeler wrote called Life is Lived in the Transitions. Mm, and yeah. the argument that he makes is that we often think like life is pretty stable. And then we have a few like, you know, two or three transition points in our life. And he makes the argument that it's actually the opposite we have a series of significant transitions throughout our life and um, and that you actually, the way that you, that you learn to live well is to learn to live well in the transitions. Um, so anyways, with that kind of backdrop here, here's what I was kind of curious about is um, like, even right now, we're obviously in the midst of significant transition worldwide, all kinds of things going on. And even as we're recording this, the U.S. stock exchange is doing all kinds of crazy things because individuals got on Reddit and and like got in. So there's just all this like volatility. Um, I love what you're saying about providing clarity for your people in the midst of uncertainty. I'm curious for you um, how you sort of stabilize yourself when you're in the midst of uncertainty, when you are leading and they're like you don't know if the church is going to last another two weeks. Um, you're not making plans more than 90 days out. Like what for you provides some sense of like stability when there's instability that you're leading through? Yeah, great question. Look, I, th I think uh, something that worked in my favor and, um, and certainly I think was valuable to the church was that just naturally speaking, in terms of my personality and, and my um, wiring, I, I am just calm and um, mm thoughtful and uh, I tend to be um, just a quiet stabilizing presence <laughs> wherever I am I'm yeah. not particularly charismatic I'm not very dynamic I'm not um, inspiring I'm not I'm not going to make you feel warm and fuzzy when I walk in the room like I don't have that persona right um, but I am I am calm and thoughtful and I think that was necessary I, I think it was just the right temperament for the season and so uh, that was advantageous. But I think as well, I, I was able to keep things in perspective to, to, to say to myself, look, there are certain things I can do and certain things I can't. There are some things that are within my control and, and some things that are not. And I, I just need to focus on what's within my control and what I can do. 
and and give what's outside of my control to God. And I think after you know 25 years of following Jesus and experiencing some of the highs and lows of life and, and ministry, I I had I think developed the ability to do that effectively. To just at the end of the day. Uh, you know, as the scriptures say, just cast all my cares upon him mm. and um, and focus primarily on what I can do. And and I think that was necessary. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's really good. I, I'm curious. Um, w- one of the things that we like to ask people are, especially for future oriented leaders, are if there are like rhythms and practices that you do that help you to mm. not just respond to the present crisis, but to be able to think beyond that. And I know you mentioned um, being like in, in this interim period of time, you were out in Africa and you were on a photography uh, trip. Like, I'm curious if there are things like that or other things that you do that help for you to have space to to think beyond the present moment. Yeah, I think on a personal level, there's, there's probably three things that come to mind. I think, first of all, I, I've always tried to prioritize um, – the all important work of thinking, <laughs> just think time. Yeah. Um, I, I think we have this unspoken um, assumption that unless you're sitting in front of a computer, you know, crunching out a document or putting together a presentation or talking to a crowd or building something, then you're not actually working. Um, in fact, I remember a number of years ago, my, my, um, my daughter walked into our, our study area. We've got this, these two beautiful big wingback chairs in, in this area where we have our study and I was sitting on one of the chairs with my feet up on the other. And she walked into the room. She was maybe about six or seven at the time. And she said, what are you doing? And I said, uh, I'm thinking. <laughs> she said, um, I thought you said you were going to be working. I said, well, I am working. <laughs> thinking is working, right? Yeah. But I think we all have this kind of unspoken assumption that that if unless we're producing something, we're not really working. But I think that thinking is probably one of the most important things any leader can do. Now, admittedly, it is my bias because... You know, I am an INTJ in, in the Myers-Briggs profile. I'm, I am an sure. introvert and I am a thinker. And so I like to process things cognitively and rationally rather than emotionally. So I, I default to thinking. But I do think that thinking is probably one of the most important aspects of leadership. And so I've tried to set aside significant time and, and amounts of my best time for the for the work of thinking. And so for me, that tends to be Thursdays. I'll block Thursdays out entirely for, for, for reading, research, message prep, and, and think time. And Love so that. I keep meeting free um, because we all know meetings and managers are the two biggest hindrances to productivity. <laughs> if mm. we can just eliminate meetings and managers, we'd all be more productive. Um, but, but that think time is, is so incredibly valuable. And I think you've got to work out what works for you. Like you've got to find a system of thinking that works for you. Like somebody once said, um, thoughts disentangle themselves when they pass through the lips or fingertips. Um, hmm. I love that. It's, it's, it's that idea that you think you've got clarity on, on what's going on inside your head until you start to speak about it. And then you realize, oh, hold on a second. Maybe I, I, I'm not as clear on this as I thought. So the process of speaking it out or writing it out actually helps you distill your thoughts down into something concrete and accessible and um, helpful. And so you've got to find out what works for you in terms of a system of thinking. But I reckon you've got to, you've got to dedicate significant amounts of time to thinking. That's um, really good. Yeah. yeah. And I love that. And it's interesting because um, it, it really is a discipline, if you will. Right. Um, and it's something you have to practice because I think that culturally, whether you're, whether you're, um, in churches or the marketplace, there's that underlying assumption, like you said, Tim, where it's like, if you're not busting out an email, putting together a presentation, you're in a meeting, then you're really not being productive. And I, I guess how, you know, as the leader uh, of the organization and one that finds value, um, in that, how were you able to translate that in the culture that you were leading? Um, you know what I mean? Down through um, the different areas of the organization where they think that it's okay for them to take time to think. You, you, you know what I mean? Yeah, well, we, we try to teach it and we try to model it. So um, it's valuable for leaders, but I think it's valuable for everyone. And so uh, we certainly encourage others to do the same. And depending on the nature of their role, they would they would you know allocate time accordingly. So um, so we certainly valued it and and try to encourage it. 
Um, but you're right, it's a discipline. And for some people, it comes easier than others, depending on their wiring. Um, so some people have to be really deliberate and, and intentional about blocking out the time and holding themselves to that time and practicing the art and the science of thinking because it's, it's not just ruminating over, you know, random thoughts. Thinking is not just um, having an internal conversation with yourself. There is a science and an art to thinking. And so you've got to learn the art of better thinking. Um, so we try to encourage uh, our team to do that and just hold it up as a value, both by teaching it and by modeling it. And um, I think people actually appreciated the freedom to do that because, as I said, as soon as you give permission to, to do it, um, then people are free to do it. And it's quite liberating and I think ultimately helpful. You know, it's, some, it's, it's a preparation thing. You know, like it's, it's the, the, the ratio of um, preparation time to performance time always kind of falls heavily in in favor of the preparation time like if you think about an athlete you know training for the olympics that that athlete might you know run a race in a minute or or 10 seconds depending on the race but they've probably spent four years preparing for that 10 seconds you know um if you're going to launch a spaceship there's you know five years of preparation in that 30 second launch so preparation time is valuable time it's not wasted time and so we try to encourage uh, our team to see the value of preparation. The preparation is never wasted. That preparation is always going to outweigh performance. And a big part of that preparation is thinking. So give give it your best energy and give it your best time. Yeah, I love that. And I think there was a, just a key word that you said there, and that is just giving people the permission. Because mm. most, most people don't give themselves that permission um, out of a sense of guilt or whatever it might be. Um, so no, I really, I really appreciate that. And, you know, as you, as you're someone who is contemplative, who, who is thinking through, um, I, I know that there was a lot of thought and preparation that went into the challenges that you faced at, at Riverview. Um, but I'm sure there were things beyond that, you know, just, just the, the challenge of that time, but just thinking through the challenges that faced the church on an ongoing basis. And, and maybe, if you could just give us your thoughts, you know, as you think of the future of the church, you know, Tomorrowland's church, um, what are you, th- what do you think are some of those challenges that, that the church is, is facing? Yeah. I, when I, when I think about the future, I kind of think about it on two levels. So I think about the kind of immediate, what I call micro level future, which is what is, what is our faith community facing in the next, in the next five years? What's, what's, um, unique to our context what are, what are we going to have to deal with as a large church based in uh, Perth Western Australia our context our socioeconomic demographic etc so that tends to be um, more immediate and so the types of things that we're dealing with there are things like well the impact of COVID and the shift toward um, you know online engagement and, and church online versus church in person all of those conversations that are happening right now, that's that's all immediate micro-level future conversations. And then at a more macro level, there are issues that I think are facing the church worldwide. And it really doesn't matter where you are. These are going to be issues that we're going to have to wrestle with. And they're a bit further down the track, but maybe not that far down the track in the sense that they might be here in the next 10, maybe 15 or 20 years. And when it comes to those macro-level issues, I'm thinking of things like... Um, uh, you know, the, the, the influence or the growing influence um, of transhumanism, say, as, as a philosophy, as a worldview, and the realization of transhumanism's vision. And so um, for those who, who may be not aware of the philosophy, it's, it's, it's not a Christian philosophy. It's a, it's a secular philosophy that essentially says, well, humanity is now in its, its next significant stage of evolution and um, that development is going to be characterized by the integration of our, uh, our biology and our technology. So human beings, for as long as, as we have been around, we've been employing technology to enhance our experience of life. So whether you, you, know, you pick up a rock to crack open a coconut, that's technology. Uh, my glasses are technology. Um, bicycle is technology. The computers that we're on today, that's all technology. So all technology is is an, enha- an enhancement of human capacity or ability. And for, for as long as we've been around, we've been using technology to enhance our experience. But what's happening now is that for the first time, um, our technology is being integrated with our biology. And so we're you know talking about 
things like, um, you know, nanotechnology flowing through our veins, um, you know, chip implants uh, in our bodies in order to regulate our health and help us process things economically. And, uh, you know, that maybe, you know, 10 years ago, if you had trouble with your eyes, they would, they would you know, um, just do laser surgery and cut out the cataract. Or, But now we're talking about the potential of having, you know, artificial lenses put in that not only improve your sight, but actually enable you to engage um, on the internet, like to engage on the World Wide Web through your lenses. And that technology is not, it's not, you know, the stuff of um, future dreams. That technology is already in development. It's, it's in yeah. some places already new. So, so what we will see is this development of what is essentially an augmented humanity. And if you've you know seen the movie Elysium with uh, Matt Damon, that's uh, that's classic kind of transhumanism philosophy. There, this idea that humanity is going to evolve and develop, you're going to have this um, kind of highly uh, augmented, part you know um, technologically enhanced human, and then you're going to have regular humans. And in the same way that you know um, wealth is the divider now um, between hum- human beings, you know you've got different socio-economic demographics. Mm-hmm. In the future, it'll be technology. So you'll have technologically enhanced humans and and, and um, ordinary humans, and that will be the new social divide. And so what does that mean for uh, us as humans? What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be a reflection of the image of God? Um, if our humanity is being enhanced and augmented by technology, is that a diminishment of the image of God? Or is that uh, a, a, f- a further realization of the image of God? It's... Those are the types of things we're going to wrestle with. So it has huge implications for, for like our ethics. We're going to have to rewrite all our ethics textbooks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so things like that are, are at the forefront of my thinking. I think also the conversation around human identity, particularly in relation to sexuality, um, is another big issue the church is going to have to come to terms with. And I know it's been a conversation for a really long time in a, in a lot of quarters. But I think what we're seeing now is in the last, I'd say, 20 years or so, there's been um, a lot of development in both the biological and the social sciences that um, is informing our understanding now of, of human identity and sexuality that is forcing us to rethink some of our theological assumptions. And so I, I think this is becoming a faith science integration issue for the church, which is something the church has wrestled with for centuries. You know, faith science integration issues have, have been... Um, you know, ongoing for the last 600 years. But I think the issue around human sexuality and identity is going to become a faith science integration issue for the church. So those are the types of macro kind of level issues that I think are going to affect the church more broadly and more widely. And the types of things I think leaders need to be thinking about and reading about. No, that's good. This is where you get to uh, promote your new book that solves all that. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, Uh, that's super, super fascinating. Um, I feel like we could have a really long conversation around like what the ethical uh, sort of framework becomes for for engaging technology, right? Because we um, we have, at least in the American church, we have uh, sort of settled for pragmatism a lot of times. And so we just adopt technology if it works. And, um, and what you're describing is, oh, is going to force us to have to ask questions like the Amish have of like, in in what way is technology good and helpful and beneficial? And in what way isn't it? And in what way, yeah, does it bring out the Imago Dei? And in what way does it dampen the Imago Dei? Yeah, I I reckon you're right. That that's a four hour long conversation. (laughs) That'll be part two. Yeah. I like of our, of our podcast. I did want to ask you this, um, Tim, you know, being in the U.S., having lived in Australia for a little while, um, it, it's funny because there's just a difference in perspective. Um, so when I was in Australia, I remember watching international news. And being in here in America, it's rarely any kind of international news on the TV. It's, it's actually quite domestic. And so, you know, as, you're, as, as you have a, maybe a little bit of wider view, um, just given, you know, where you came from, and where you are today, and, and at least an outside view of where we are as a church in the U.S., is there is there anything, and I know I'm putting you on the, the, the hot seat here, but is there anything as you look at the church in the U.S. that you have concerns about? 
Um, I, th I think what's probably most uh, surprising, I think, to people looking in from the outside at, at the church in the U.S., is how deeply the political preferences of um, believers yeah. shape and inform their faith. Um, the 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 amount of um, political conversation or political emphasis or um, political leaning that finds expression through through faith is actually quite surprising and um, and unfortunately divisive at least it appears to be divisive so um, so that's just an observation in, in other parts of the world I haven't seen the same level of um, political influence on faith and so th that's just interesting which I think is a long-standing cultural phenomenon and I know there's history behind all of that as to as to why it's developed in that way um, but that's an interesting observation and I'm not sure how you guys deal with that I'm not sure as church leaders how you how you manage um, that type of political tension in your in your congregations? I can only imagine it must be a that in itself is a challenging exercise. Um, but I would say I'm not sure that it's serving the church well. I guess that's yeah. what I'm saying. Is is I'm not sure that that political um, uh, kind of domination of conversation uh, is helping the church in America. No, I think that's. I mean, that's spot on. And, and I know Mike has some thoughts on that. And it's interesting as we interview people on the podcast that, that they would resonate with what you just said, that yeah. the challenge facing the church today, one of the largest challenges is kind of this political divide. You, you know what I mean? And, and the question then is, how do you handle that? Some people just completely ignore it. So if you're not a part of our tribe, you're not a part of our church. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's really interesting. But Mike, I know you got some thoughts. Well, I, I was just going to piggyback a question off of that, that we, um, you know, in the United States, we are like you were talking about, Blake, with our news, it's very domestic oriented. We're very ethnocentric and our church is very ethnocentric in a lot of ways. Um, I would love to hear from you, Tim. Um, and I don't feel like this is you being prideful or anything. If like, what do we have to learn from the Australian church or from the church of South Africa? Like, what are some of the gifts of the church in that space that we should be paying attention to? Wow, great question. Um, I, I think I'll speak about the Australian context first. I think um, probably one of the things I've appreciated most about the Australian context is there is a very um, sincere commitment to egalitarianism. So this idea of a fair go, everyone should have equal opportunity. Um, and I think that is that is sincere and what that does do is it translates into a genuine um willingness to listen to the other um it, it's it's not that's not to say there's no say political you know hostility between various parties and that type of thing but there is genuine something in the culture that is committed to egalitarianism i think the shadow side of that the dark side of that is that sometimes that commitment to egalitarianism translates into like a shared commitment to mediocrity <laughs> it's like a, a collective um, agreement that we're all going to be average. So um, you hear people talk about the tall poppy syndrome, which is this idea of, well, if you rise to the top or you're successful or you assert yourself or you're ambitious, well, then the collective will just cut you down to size. And so I think the dark side of that commitment to egalitarianism is it can then translate into this shared commitment to mediocrity. But, but the value of egalitarianism is actually something that I see in the church. I see it in community and society. And, uh, and a commitment to giving people um, fair opportunity and fair go. And so if, if you could Im import anything from Australia, <laughs> I'd say import that commitment to, to fairness and equality and opportunity. Um, I think in the South African context, uh, I think the, the gift that the South African church has to offer the world is, is I think, um, resilience in, in the face of incredible adversity and hostility. I think the, the South African church battles some of the most um, incredible conditions, uh, socioeconomic challenges, health challenges, uh, corruption in government, violent crime. I mean, it's just a whole array of challenges facing the South African church. But their faithfulness, their resilience, their commitment to enduring, to meeting, to gathering, to continuing to be the church and the people of God in the world in the face of those is just so inspiring and uh, and, and so worth replicating. And so I think if if you could gain any from them, it would be that. Let me ask you this, Tim. You know, there there was a movement, I think, 
um, that was started out of Australia. And, and I really think it was the worship movement in, in many ways, right? Uh, and made its way around the world. You, you know, yeah. when, you, when you look at kind of the worldview of the church, do you, do you see any movements? Do you, do you see anything that you see kind of moving um, and stirring, even if it's not Australia or South Africa, but um, just as you, as you look out? Yeah, it's a great question, man. I, and I do, and, and, and I think what I, I see, and, um, and this, this, this might be somewhat, I don't know, controversial to say, or it might be somewhat provocative, but I'll say it anyway, just take it from where it's coming. Um, what I do see is I think a shift away from um, the attractional model of church to something more missional. So by that, I mean, um, you know, attractional model of church is, um, that whole come and see model. Like we're we're going we're gonna to put on an awesome experience. Um, there's a team of highly polished professionals who are going to deliver that experience. We're going to make it accessible. We're going to make it um, low offense. We're going to make it enjoyable. And we want you to bring your non-Christian friends and, and let them experience this together with you. And hopefully that opens up their heart to the gospel. And so the leading proponents of that attractional model would be you know, places like Willow Creek and North Point more recently. And they've done it well and they've done it successfully. Um, and they've helped all of us um, think more clearly about our language and our presence in the community and how better to relate to non-Christian people, et cetera, et cetera. But I, but I do think that the attractional model is either running out of steam or is just no longer effective for the context, for the season we're in. And so I'm seeing a shift away from, from the attractional model to, to what, what is more missional from, from a kind of come and see to go and be type model, which, which says, look, we do gather as the church, but, but we gather um, not to provide a, a kind of low offense, you know, palatable, easy, accessible experience for the non-Christian. We gather as the church and we gather to uh, worship and to pray and to be ourselves and to, and to be unashamedly ourselves and to talk about the things that need to be spoken about. Um, in clear and, and important ways, but so that we can go out and, and so that we can be a presence in the community and so we can love our community and serve our community so that the community actually, number one, know that we're there and number two, care that we're there. And I think you've got to ask yourself the question, like if our, if our church closed the doors tomorrow, would anyone in our community know? Yeah. And would anyone care? <laughs> and, and sadly for many churches, 90% of the people in their community wouldn't even know that the doors closed and, and certainly wouldn't care. And so I, I think there is a shift happening towards um, loving our cities, um, reaching our communities in practical, tangible, helpful, genuinely loving ways, and not just doing it through the institutional organized entity we call the church, but through the individual believers living out their faith in really um, loving and, and practical ways. Um, that serve the community, and so I'm seeing that shift happening, which is which is I think really exciting, and uh, it is going to reframe I think how we measure success and how we measure our effectiveness. Um, I mean, you know the, the old saying: you know, not everything that matters can be measured, and not everything that can be measured matters. But I think we do need to measure, measure some things, and I think it's going to reframe what we measure. So, for example, um, you know, typically in in an attractional type model, we'll measure the number of people who say volunteer internally in the church. So we'll, we'll work out what percentage of our adult population serve in a volunteer role in some capacity. And that may be 25 or 30% of the congregation actively serve in the life of the church. Um, but what if we started measuring how many of our people are serving out in the community? Mm. Are serving not necessarily even in a, in a Christian organization. They might be serving at the Red Cross or at... Good Sammies or at uh, Habitat for Humanity or, or, or some other community organization that's doing good, uh, that, that's transforming the world for, for the better. Uh, what if we measured the, the percentage of adult congregation members who serve outside of the church and made that a measurable and a metric? And so we might, we might say, do a survey of the church and, uh, and, and, and say, all right, well, you know, 10% of our people actively serve in the community in some way. Um, but we want to change that. And we want every single one of you to serve at least, you know, a couple of hours every fortnight or every month out in the community, loving and serving the people who occupy the streets that you occupy. And, 
And if five years from now, that 10% is 70%, hey, that's a win. And and that is, I think, the shift from attractional to missional. So that's the type of thing I'm sensing and seeing. And, and that's the type of stuff that gets me excited about the future. I love that. And I do feel like some of that um, was exported from Australia to the States. Uh, you've got people like Al Hirsch and... Um, Michael Frost and, Correct, yeah. and I'm sure that there's several others that I'm that I'm not aware of or come at the top of mind, but that sort of thinking I know uh, did come across from Australia and began influencing our churches here for sure. Yeah, so. yeah, they've, they've been quite influential here, and and I think there is a quite a strong missional movement growing in Australia. But so so glad to hear that it's it's filtering across the ocean. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I love that. Well, hey, as we close up here, Tim, and I've really enjoyed getting to know you a little bit here. I want to go spend a couple of days with you in Australia now. I feel like we could have really rich conversations. I would love to pick your brain more. Um, So you talked a little bit about the the missional movement and that giving you some hope. I would love to know, just kind of as we wrap up here, if there's anything else and kind of like where you see the church headed that's making you hopeful right now that you're like, oh, this this makes me feel good about the church. There's so many things we can point to that are messed up and wrong, but there are some, like, what are some beautiful things that make you feel hopeful right now? Yeah. I, I think my, my hope lies in two things. Number one, the sovereignty of God. So I have a high view of the sovereignty of God and I, I firmly believe that he gets his way in the end. And so, you know, people say things like, you know, the church is only one generation away from extinction. I'm like, no, it's not. Are you kidding me? Like God's not going to just let this whole thing implode and, derail the whole plan now he's 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 in, mm. he's i wouldn't say he's in control because I, I i've got i i'm not convinced that control is like a legitimate you know form of um um kind of authority but that's a conversation for another day but but god is certainly sovereign and and ultimately his plan and his purpose will prevail so my hope is attached to that um, but then also the resilience of the church and i think that is something i've seen both in south africa here in australia like up close personally firsthand in the face of the most incredible adversity and, and difficulty, the church is resilient. It, it is it is strong. It is patient. It is um, faithful. It is um, robust, and uh, and it endures. and And so I see the church wrestling with all sorts of difficulties, and it does raise um, questions about the future and causes people to feel uncertainty. But my hope lies in in what I think is an intrinsic um, uh, resilience in the church, and I think it's just built into our DNA. I think I think God has has made us as His people um, to be enduring. So um, I'm just seeing the church respond to even things like the COVID situation and and the pressure that it's putting on leaders and on congregations. But the church continues to meet, and we continue to be the church, and we continue to reach the world and to love people in Jesus' name. And, uh, and like Jesus said, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. And he is absolutely committed, covenantally committed to the task of building his people. And, uh, and that gives me great hope. That's great. I love that so much. Uh, seriously, Tim, it has been such a gift, uh, to have you here. I'm really grateful that Blake would introduce us and, um, Hey, is there anywhere for people? I love that we're getting to introduce some people over here in the States to you and your thinking. Is there anywhere we can point people to where they can find you? Do you have a website? Are you on Instagram? Yeah, so um, I've, I've actually fairly recently launched a blog site uh, called timhealy.net, timhealy.net. Um, so they're welcome to head over there and uh, access some of my ramblings and musings. And then, of course, you can follow me on social media. So I'm on Facebook and uh, Instagram at uh, the, the, the Twitter handle and the Facebook handle is at Tim Jim Healy. My second name is James. <laughs> so Fantastic. Tim Jim Healy. And Tim Jim. Along for the conversation. I love it. I love it. Thanks so much for being with us today and for getting up early. And we really appreciate it. It was a gift. No, pleasure. Thank you, guys. Appreciate the opportunity. Good to meet you, Mike, and good to see you again, Blake. You haven't aged a day, mate. You were were (laughs) young as you did, what was it, 10 years ago? Yes, I've got no hair. (laughs) (laughs) Good you, man. It looks great. looks great. I like it.
Uh, well, Blake, that was fantastic. I really am grateful that you had Tim on. I enjoyed getting to know him a bit and the way that he thinks. And he is just a super interesting guy. Yeah, blessed to, blessed to know Tim and just, you know, connected instantly with him when we moved to Australia. He was just such, him and his wife, uh, Liesl, were just such loving people and uh, really helped us assimilate, you know, into a new culture that was unknown to us. And what I love about Tim is just his deep thinking and the result of his deep thinking. And, and you can just see how he clearly articulates, um, you know, his thoughts and, um, you know, just based on what he had gone through, you can tell how God used him uh, in such a time as that for sure. But what was interesting is, you know, that whole idea of preparation versus performance, this, yeah. this idea of thinking and taking time out of the day or a day out of the week to really focus in on some of the more important things. And, you know, he, he hit it spot on where it's like the, the pressure is, I think the cultural norm is that if you're not in front of a screen, if you're not producing um, then, then you're not doing your job or you're not as valuable as you could be for the organizations you serve. And I think he just brings great clarity and perspective to say, no, actually thinking is probably the most important thing you can do all week preparing. And, and it's something that actually, you know, hit me, uh, convicted me a little bit, you know, mm -hmm. as we've got plain Joe, you know, what are we doing? Are we giving permission to our own people to take time to think, or is there this kind of un, you know, read um, script or, 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 you know, this influence that if you're not doing, you know, you're not as valuable, especially, you know, when you think about billable time as an agency and things like that, but, sure. but really, you know, we need to be putting a premium on that time. And so it, I just, for me personally, very convicting. And, and I think on the other side of this podcast interview, you know, I've got to go back to our leadership team and ask some some hard questions of ourselves to go, are we really giving people permission to think, to prepare before we're to perform? And so that was one of the, 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 the biggest takeaways I took uh, from our time with Tim. Yeah, I like that so much. I wrote down so many notes on on that section when he was talking like, I have, I have a ton of notes there and it spurred off all these other thoughts, other things that I had remembered. Uh, one of my favorite Ted talks is actually a, um, a designer, a graphic designer who does a sabbatical year with his company. Have you seen that one? I've not seen that. I got to see that. Yeah. He, um, he's very, very well known. I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but he's very well known. It's one of the top Ted talks. And he, um, he decided that every, I think it's every six years that their company will work and they take a full year off. So they just shut down for a year and he won't take on anything new during that year. And he said the first time that he did it, he was really nervous, obviously coming back, like, will they have clients again, blah, 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 all of that. And that not only did, um, what they did in that one year, like the way that they took that sabbatical year, not only did it inform their work for the next six years, he said their work was better and they were able to charge more for it. So it like, so it had this like practical outcome, um, but it's really hard to convince ourselves. I remember like when I was leading the church, it was really hard to like think like, oh, reading a book is part of my job. Yeah. And I have to create time for that. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I think there's something biblical in that whole six, seven year uh, model that you, that you just described. But um, <laughs> maybe, maybe we've read that somewhere. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Old Testament, New Testament, somewhere in there. Um, but, uh, but you're absolutely right. Um, and you know, that's, that's bold, right? That's, that's courageous, uh, especially the, the example of, of taking a full year off, but it's not easy, like you said. And I, I think as, as leaders, um, it's not easy. There's, there's just that constant tension of pressure and some people are wired to do that. Some people are wired to, to sit on, uh, you know, a comfy couch and, you know, pull up a, a, a book that they love and just read and think. And, and for some, it's very difficult. Um, but and, and I think that's why we need to probably consider it a discipline, right? It it's, doesn't yeah. come easy, but there's something really positive that comes out on the other side of that. Yeah, yeah. He did say, and we didn't get to push into this much, but he did say like 
people need to learn how to think. We don't like naturally know how to think. We have to learn how to think. Like, um, I thought that was really interesting. And, and that, that actually reminded me of there's this, this guy I know he's a theoretical physicist, um, way smarter than me. And, um, and I went to dinner with him one time to just ask him a whole bunch of questions about physics. And in the midst of it, at some point he starts telling me about this physicist who's super well-known and like had all these theories that changed the game on things. Like, I, I don't remember who it was. Cause again, I'm not that smart, but the thing that I always remember about it is that he told me that what this physicist used to do is that he would work for four hours in the morning. And then he would go on a walk for the next four hours. Wow. And over those next four hours, he's just digesting and processing and thinking about all this stuff. And, but the act of walking is what actually helped him to be able, like he couldn't sit in a chair and do it. He needed to do something physical that enabled his brain to engage in a different kind of way. Yeah. Which is a great point. I mean, we know, right. Scientifically, we know that we learn in different ways Yeah. and to prescribe something to somebody, um, you know, for some people sitting with a book or sitting with just a blank pad is, is torture, you know, and not very fruitful. And I, and that's a good point. It, it's finding what works for you as long as it's starting to stimulate your thinking. Right. And you're taking that, that time. That's so good. Yeah. He dropped so much stuff. One of the, one of the things I thought was interesting towards the end of our time with him is he talked about uh, being really hopeful about the, the missional church movement. And, um, and I, I was leading a church that when I took over had been very influenced by the attractional church. And, and we, um, you, you can't just dismantle that. And I don't even know that that's the right thing to do is to just right. like pendulum swing. But we, we had been really influenced by a lot of uh, people who are writing out of the missional church. And so we began to try to integrate some of that and, and what we were doing and even creating some hybrid models. And one of the things that he talked about reminded me of a thing that we did that I think like we just kind of dipped our toes in and I wish we would have developed it more, but was the idea of like that wherever you're serving in the community is an act of service to God. It's like planting kingdom seeds yeah. And so we would tell people like, maybe God's calling you to be the PTA president or to coach a little league team. And like, that's serving and that's good, valid, beautiful serving. If that's what God's calling you to do, there's something significant about um, honoring and validating that. Absolutely. And, and, and I think what he said is, you know, that whole, whole idea of measurable, you know, yes. and sometimes the most important things are hard to measure. Um, but that, but that shouldn't stop us from trying to accomplish those things. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So it's, it's important to, to, um, to evaluate what we're measuring and not just like, what are, um, let's not measure this, let's measure this instead, but instead asking like when we're measuring those things, what kind of outcomes is that showing? What kind of kingdom values are being created out of that? What's the long-term discipleship benefit for this? Is this producing more disciples of Jesus is, is impacting our community or like what, what's the outcome of this? And yeah, I thought that was really helpful. Yeah. And then, I mean, Tim did such a great job, you know, and there's so many things that we could talk about, you know, post, uh, post his interview, but it was really interesting to get his perspective on the American church yes. and, and um, it's almost confusing for those who don't live here in the U.S., you know, as to how much politics influences our, our, our faith and, and it, you know, and I'm not saying I have a solution. I, I don't have a solution, <laughs> but it was just really interesting to hear that because we've interviewed, you know, pastors, some megachurch pastors, and, and these are the same things that they're wrestling uh, with. And um, I don't know, man, that, that's just something that I think is confronting the American church that we've got to resolve, you know, in, in the near term. Yeah, it would be um, it would be interesting to to find some people who are thinking in that way, who are thinking about because it's a uniquely American problem, as he pointed out, and as anybody who studies the church knows, like it is very uniquely American, and it doesn't just go away by burying our heads in the sand and being like, well, we can't be, we shouldn't be like this anymore. Like it ha it it will require a lot of intentionality. Uh, to move beyond that because it is so it's so much in the water. Yeah. And it's interesting because it, it was framed up as kind of politics and that lens. 
in terms of looking at your faith. Somebody else may say, no, it's your faith is the lens that you're looking out. And this is why, you know, this is your political bent. And it's just, um, I don't know, it's a fairly complex, complex subject. Um, so yeah, I would, you know, it'd be great. It'd be great to get some people on to just kind of tackle that. Yeah, that would be good. That would be good. Well, look forward to that at some point, friends. And hey, if you do have any suggestions on that, you, you're like, hey, you should be talking to this person on it. We would love to hear it. Um, but we are grateful that you joined us again here on the Tomorrowland Church podcast. Um, I mean, we could we could probably do a little follow up here for another half an hour just talking about the things that that uh, that Tim shared that really stuck with us. But we know that your time is valuable. And so I know that you're going to you're going to have a lot of your own conversations on this as well. And so we are grateful that you would take time to join us here at Tomorrowland Church, where we're a podcast to explore innovative ways transformational leaders are leading and reimagining the church for tomorrow. Tomorrowland Church is produced by Caleb Henry. Um, you can get a hold of Caleb at caleb.m.henry97 at gmail.com. Our music was written and produced by Scott Moore, who is at O-N-E-M-O-O-R-E Scott at gmail.com. If you want to get in touch with Blake, he is Blake at plainjoestudios.com. And if you want to buy me a ticket to fly to Australia to hang out with Tim, I am Mike G at plainjoestudios.com. Looking forward to connecting with you next time.